Hello and welcome to the Kitchen Table Theology Podcast, where each week, Pastor Jeff Cranston explores biblical theology that provides practical life applications in an understandable way. Thanks for joining us at the table. Let's get started. Hello again. Welcome back to Kitchen Table Theology. I'm your host, Tiffany Coker, and here with Pastor Jeff Cranston, we're on a quest to learn what the Bible teaches about doctrine and theology. These are the topics that many Christians find challenging, confusing, somewhat out of reach, but we're always aiming to do this in a way that can apply to our lives. We do this because we agree with what C.S. Lewis once said, a person can't always be defending the truth. There must be a time to feed on it. And that's what we hope happens within you and us as we meet together on this podcast, that the word will feed us because we want to help you be strong in your faith doctrinally, knowledgeable in and of the word theologically, and grow in our love for Jesus exponentially. So today's podcast continues part two of defining our terms as we look into the theology of worship. And hello again, everybody. Pastor Jeff, always glad to be with you. And as we get underway... We want to remind you about our podcast partner, Columbia International University in Columbia, South Carolina. They have dozens of solid undergraduate, graduate, and seminary programs available, both on campus and online. They've even got some programs that are fairly new in nursing and biomedical science and a really popular master of organizational leadership. Or maybe you're one of those people who have waited long enough and it's finally time for you to move on and get that doctorate. And they have a number of doctoral programs as well. And you can check them out right now or as soon as we get done here with Kitchen Table Theology. You can check them out at ciu.edu. All right, let's get started. So we're continuing to look into some of the terms that we run across in the area of worship. And today we're going to look at the differences and similarities with ordinances and sacraments what the words hallelujah and amen mean, and how prayer can contribute to our worship. So let's get started with sacraments and ordinances. Again, like we talked about last week, these words might be some that we're familiar with. We hear them from time to time, but I wonder, do we? what do we really know about these two words? Yeah, again, these are, these are churchy kind of words, big words. We don't use them really much outside of the church world, especially sacraments. Ordinance, uh, you'll hear in a military sense, but ordinances and sacraments, they're, they're often used interchangeably, but when we really do dig down into them, we find some pretty significant differences. All right, let's start with sacrament. Can you define what a sacrament is for us? Well, I can certainly try. Roman Catholicism, that church, A few Protestant denominations use the term. Eastern Orthodoxy churches use that term, and that's even Eastern Orthodoxy. I'm guessing a lot of us maybe don't know what that is, and that's probably worthy of a podcast or two one day. But there are 220 million adherents, and Eastern Orthodoxy, that's the second largest Christian church in the world. So them, Roman Catholics, a few Protestant denominations use the term sacrament to refer, and here's what it is. It refers to a rite, R-I-T-E, a rite through which God's grace is conveyed to an individual, and it, it's, it's usually conveyed through a ceremony of some sort. A sacrament is often thought of as uh, being a means of God's grace, as 
As a worshiper performs a certain religious rite, he or she receives a divine blessing either for salvation or for some level of sanctification. Uh, an ordinance is not really considered a conduit of grace, simply a, something that w- we're commanded to perform by the Lord. Uh, so, in other words, a sacrament at some level involves a supernatural work of God. Now, the Roman Catholic Church teaches there are seven sacraments, and I know many in our kitchen table audience maybe are Catholic or you have attended Catholic Church in the past, there's seven sacraments, baptism, confirmation, holy communion, confession, marriage, holy orders, and the anointing of the sick. And according to the Catholic Church, the rites by which the sacraments are celebrated or observed signify and make present the graces that are proper to each sacrament, and those are those are defined for the adherents. Also, in the Catholic Catechism, we read this statement, and I'm quoting, The Church affirms that for believers, the sacraments of the New Covenant are necessary for salvation. End quote. So those seven things, and practicing those seven sacraments, are necessary for salvation. And that, that in my theology, and what we teach here at Kitchen Table Theology, reveals a works-based system of salvation and a sacerdotal approach to worship. Okay, hold on. Wait right there. Sacerdotal? What in the world does that mean? I figured I figured since we were using big church words, we, we'd go all out on sacerdotal. Yeah, that's another term you tend to hear in sacramental churches. Sacerdotal refers to priests and priestly functions, what, what priests do. It's, it's a doctrine which... Abs- Let's see. It's a doctrine which ascribes functions uh, that priests perform, and there are spiritual or supernatural powers that accompany these rites and practices, but they, they, they are recognized to be done only through ordained priests, or in some cases, ordained an ordained layperson. So in, in these churches, the sacraments cannot be administered without ordained clergy. Okay, so that could be new to some of us. That seems to be in contrast with what many of us may know in our Protestant and evangelical churches. Is that right? Yeah, and you know, here our theology is going to show. So as as Protestant evangelicals, we believe that the Bible tells us that grace is not given through rites or rituals or through outward symbols or something, and and none of that is necessary for salvation. So in most Protestant churches, then, we would use the word ordinance instead of sacrament. So let's talk about the word ordinance for a minute, and what does that mean? Yeah, that's right. Most evangelical churches prefer the word ordinance, and that that can be defined as an act that we do in obedience to something that God has said. So Protestants and evangelicals, we really reject the notion that sacraments can offer salvation or that even they are a part of salvation. So rather, most most of the time, we see these as signs of grace that we have already received. And there aren't seven of them. There are two of them, so two ordinances within the Protestant church, and that would be baptism, or they would be baptism and communion. Sometimes we call that the Lord's Supper. All right, and those of you in our Kitchen Table Theology audience who want to take a deeper dive into those two ordinances, baptism and communion, 
We have already done podcasts on those two. So you can go back and listen. Episodes 83 to 86 cover those specifically. To help avoid communicating the idea that their religious activities are channels of grace, most evangelicals prefer to call them ordinances, as you said, as opposed to sacraments. They see uh-huh. the ordinances as symbolic reenactments of the gospel message. So rather than being a requirement for salvation, these ordinances are visual aids to help us better understand and appreciate what Jesus has accomplished for us in his redemptive work. I was talking with Callie about that last Sunday. We had communion at church and just trying to explain to her, this is a symbolic reenactment. It is used to remind us, a physical reminder of what Christ has done for us. So in doing that, we are testifying and it's our testimony that yes, we do believe in Christ and are going to follow these things that he has called us to do. So we have... Go ahead. I say we observe the Lord's Supper, we do baptism. So how did we just land on those two things? Because you said there were seven sacraments, but just two ordinances. So how do we have just those two? And then what's the reason that those are practiced? Yeah, good questions. Well, I think ordinances, the two ordinances, Lord's Supper and baptism, they've been determined by three factors. I don't want to get our numbers all mixed up here. There's seven sacraments. <laughs> there's two ordinances. The two ordinances have been determined by three factors. So, number one, they were instituted by Christ. Number two, they were taught by the apostles. And number three, they were practiced by the early church. So, baptism and communion are the, the two practices that most evangelicals, most all evangelicals, consider the ordinances. And neither of them as we understand them, are requirements for salvation. If you're looking for scriptural support for these two, the support for baptism would be in Matthew 28, 18-20, the Great Commission. And then scripture to support communion would be in Luke Luke 22 and also in 1 Corinthians 11. All right. I feel like we've covered sacraments versus ordinances. Let's turn to another word. I'm sure this is one we have all likely used, the word hallelujah. What a wonderful word to use. But what does it mean, and how did it come to us? Yeah, when I was in college, I sang for a few semesters in the college choir. Uh, I think it was called the Ambassador Choir. Now, I only sang a few semesters because it required a certain grade point average, which I was unable to maintain. (laughs) But I did sing one of the semesters, and we sang the Hallelujah Chorus from Handel's Messiah. And, you know, anytime you hear the Messiah being sung and performed, that's a rather long piece. I've sat at that a number of times. My recollection is if you listen to the entire Messiah that Handel wrote being sung, it's like a two-hour deal. But when, when, no matter where you are, when you get to the Hallelujah Chorus, without being told, everyone stands, and they stay standing until that one section is completed. Everybody's singing Hallelujah. Okay, so yes, I read about this. This custom began in the mid-1700s, when King George II of England stood during this part of the Messiah, I read to see why this got started. Some people don't really know why. They think the king was just moved by the music and the message, and so he rose out of reverence. Some people say that he had gout and needed to increase his blood flow. 
And someone else suggested <laughs> that after sitting for two hours, the king just needed to stretch his legs. <laughs> so we don't really know why we do it, but we do. And we all stand for the last few minutes of that chorus. Yeah. And yeah. It's wonderful to thank King George II. He, and he, by the way, was the king. He was the father of, of King George the third that we fought against during the Revolutionary War here in America. So we're going back to the early to mid-1700s there. It's wonderful to think that out of reverence he, he rose, but truth of the matter is we really don't know. But anyway, as the audience stands, over the next four minutes or so, the choir repeats the word hallelujah 48 times. But the audience, the musicians never seem to tire of it. And I, to this day, I can, I still remember the, the tenor line. I, because I had to memorize it. And anytime I hear it sung, my mind always starts singing along with the tenor part. But, you know, you can credit Handel's inspired and very vibrant melody, but also there's mystical power of that combination of vowels and consonants. Hallelujah. So, Tiff, just in the day-to-day, how do you find yourself using the word hallelujah? All right. Well, one of Cade, my middle son's favorite songs is Raise a Hallelujah by Bethel Music. So we play that one in the car a good bit. And it itself is seven or eight minutes long. I should maybe count how many times we repeat the word hallelujah. (laughs) Um, So we hear that a lot. We talked, I think, last week about our worship happening in the car. That's one example. And sometimes Mm -hmm. it's just an expression like, oh, hallelujah, we made it to school on time today. (laughs) Um, So we use it many different ways throughout our day. But what does the word hallelujah mean exactly? And how does that fit into our discussion of worship here? Yeah, hallelujah is a Hebrew word, and it's mainly found in the Psalms. And like you just said, not to mention in heaps of our worship songs and and our hymns. And in its simplest form, hallelujah simply means praise God. And it's a combination of two words. Hallel is a H-A-L-L-E-L in English. Hallel is a Hebrew word, and it means joyous, joyous praise in song or to boast in God. The Yah part, J-A-H in our English spelling is pronounced Yah. It's, it's the shortened form of Yahweh, the Hebrew name for God. So in essence, in essence, hallelujah is an exclamation of praise, meaning that we joyously praise and boast in God. All right. There's another word that we use all the time, probably without even thinking about it. We say it at the end of every prayer, amen or amen. What do we need to know about this word that is so familiar to us? Yeah, it's another Hebrew word, and man is a declaration of affirmation, and it basically means, yes, I agree, or we agree, and I'm joining with you in what you've just said, or something along the lines of what you've just said or what you've just prayed is true and firm and reliable. And it's a word found commonly in the Old and the New Testaments, What amen does not mean is my prayer is now over, which seems to have become its current sort of common definition. We don't really know why we say it, but it's the sign that the prayer is over. Well, that's not really why it's there. It's it's a declaration of affirmation that I agree with you and what you said is, is right, firm, true, and reliable. And of course, that has obvious connotations to our prayers. All right. We've covered sacraments ordinances, hallelujah, and amen. 
Let's end today with a major component of our worship, prayer. And I feel like this is something most of us will know something about. We know what it is. We know what it means to pray. We know that the Bible commands us to pray. We know that prayer is how we communicate with God. But what is prayer's role specifically in our worship? So our, our goal in worship ought to be to worship as the Lord wants us to worship. And we can hardly do better than to look at how those through whom God revealed his word who are the apostles and the prophets, to look at how they worshipped. And if we looked at the apostles, Acts 2.42 features the earliest record of the church's worship following Pentecost. And the church was birthed in Acts 2. That's, that's when it started. And we're given a little bit of an insight into, into the elements, several essential elements of worship in the church is in its earliest stages. So, Tiff, how about reading Acts 2.42 for us? Sure. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Yeah, so thanks. First note, the, the earliest Christians devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So that practice confirms what we talked about on our last podcast regarding, regarding the importance of reading the Word of God, of teaching the Word of God, preaching the Word of God in our worship services. And and second, and most importantly for our study today, is that during the apostolic period, the early church was devoted to the prayers. So the early church was a praying church, and prayers were an integral part of early Christian worship. And that, that shouldn't be surprising at all, because the first Christians, most all of them, were of a Jewish background, and prayers were a vitally important part of synagogue worship. And moreover, Prayers were also offered to God during worship conducted at the temple in Jerusalem all throughout the day, sometimes throughout the night, special times of prayer, special feast days, and and things like that. So prayer was a regular part of daily worship in the temple of the Jews there in Jerusalem. People confessed their sins to God when they brought their sacrifices. And, of course, the book of Psalms is itself, in many ways, a prayer book. And many of the Psalms were written specifically for use in public worship. So prayers could be read out from the Psalms. So prayers were spoken, prayers were sung, and prayers just has always been an essential part in biblically faithful worship. Now, we we often think of prayer as a spiritual discipline for private worship or private devotion or just as I'm living my life, I want to pray and and, and so it is, and it ought to be. But prayer is also a public devotion, a public act of worship, and it and it has to be a part of our corporate worship as well. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening today to Kitchen Table Theology. Take a moment, if you would, to rate and review today's podcast wherever you listen to it, whether that's on Apple, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. This really helps new listeners find the show, and we want to be able to spread the Kitchen Table Theology love. Be sure to check out each episode's show notes as well. Special thanks to our team at Streamline Podcast for editing and sound designing today's episode. You can find out more about their work at StreamlinePodcast.com and head on over to JeffCranston.com for more information about Pastor Jeff, his books, his sermons, and a few blog posts. If you desire to go deeper and further your education, remember to check out our partner, Columbia International University. 
You can find out all you need to know about them at ciu.edu. So thanks again for joining us today. And until next time, always remember that the real power of theology is not only knowing it, but applying it. You've been listening to the Kitchen Table Theology Podcast with Pastor Jeff Cranston. Join us next time for more insights into biblical truth. If you'd like to know more on today's topic, please check out our show notes. If you have a question from today's podcast, kindly email us at pastorjeff at lowcountrycc.org. If you're enjoying this podcast, would you consider leaving a rating and review? We deeply appreciate your help in getting the word out. And be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or in your favorite podcasting app to continue this journey with us as we learn about and apply God's word to our lives. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time here at Kitchen Table Theology.